Last week, we wanted to take these first couple weeks of 2023 to just look at um, a couple of basics of the Christian faith, a couple of basics of the Christian faith. Sometimes uh, complexity is the enemy of execution, right? Sometimes when something seems really hard or really uh, complicated, it can be much harder to do just because we wonder, well, where, where do we even begin? What are the first steps? There's so many different dependencies and all that. And the Christian life can be a very complex thing. There are difficult judgment calls that we have to make. It's not easy always to know how to live in this world. And yet, God's word is also understandable to even the youngest children, to even the most simple-minded person. And so we wanted to, again, start 2023 with just a reminder of some really simple things. And so Nate started that for us well last week by just reminding us that what it means to be a Christian is to follow Jesus, right? It means that we are disciples of Jesus. We want to listen to him. We want to be with him where he is. And then we want to carry out his commands. That's, that's what it means to be a Christian. And then this morning, we want to look at what does it mean to be the church? What does it mean to be the church? And the main point that I want to make to you this morning from God's word is that to be the church primarily means that we love one another. That's the reason, I believe, why God placed the church on this earth, so that it could be a community of love that then displays the love of God in the gospel. So that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. And again, our hope is that looking at these fundamentals of the faith, these basics of the Christian life, is something that will serve you as you go into 2023, not to get so caught up in complexity or difficult situations in your life or things that you don't know how to move forward on, but rather to return to the basics, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, to be the church as God has called us to be the church, and to move forward from there. So to that end, uh, we have four texts to read. Um, The First two are the ones that the message really most center around. So the first one is John 17, 20 and 20, 20 to 23. Sadie will come and read that for us. That's from Jesus' high priestly prayer, the, the last prayer that he prayed before he was arrested, where he's praying for his followers, for those who will believe in him after he's been crucified and resurrected, when he's praying for us, so to speak. The next text we will read is Acts 2, 41 to 47. Crystal will read that for us. That's the first description we get in the New Testament of the church, of what the church looked like, what the church did. And similarly, Acts 4, 32 to 35 kind of repeats that idea, and Jackie will read that for us. And then lastly, Nate will come and read for us from the book of John again, John 13, 34 to 35. And again, what I want us to see from these is how we are commanded to love one another and how that really is central to the identity of the church. So at this time, Sadie, if you'd like to come forward and read for us. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and I love them, even as you love me. Acts 2.41 So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 
And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as many as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Acts four thirty-two through 35 Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. John 13, verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Well, beloved, I think we can be very prone today to uh, downgrade the importance of love, whether within the family of God or the love that we are to have, Jesus commands us for our enemies or for outsiders. And there's probably a variety of reasons why we're prone to uh, downgrade this command to love. I think for myself, probably the number one reason why I would downgrade it is because it seems like just such a culturally popular phenomena, right? Um, if you watch Disney movies or really any movie at all, you know, it's going to celebrate the value of love. Um, in our day as well, the homosexual community has kind of co-opted the idea of love, you know, and you'll see signs in the front yards of people that say, love is love. And so in that way, we think, well, if we really make ourselves people of love, or if we center our lives on love, then aren't we somehow just going with the flow of the culture? Aren't we somehow just falling into the same errors that our culture has fallen into? And certainly that's possible. I don't want to negate that possibility. I think we should be concerned about that. And yet, even as we are concerned about that, I think we have to, at the same time, go to God's word and take our marching orders from there, should we not? And as we go to God's word and as we take our marching orders from God's word, I believe what we see over and over from the very first page of the Bible to the very last page of the Bible is that we are to be people of love. We are to be people of love. And it's not a mystery why we are to be people of love, is it? I mean, Scripture tells us that God is love. That's in 1 John. It says God is love. Now, for the Bible itself, that's a very unusual statement. There's not many statements in the Bible where you get a statement that says God is something or other. We have a couple others. We, we see that God is jealous. It says that in Deuteronomy. Or we're also told God is spirit. And so we have a couple other statements of God is. But God is love is one of those few statements we have about the essential nature and character of God. We don't even get a statement like, God is justice or God is righteousness. It seems that God's love seems to somehow take priority over other attributes of God. 
Now it's a whole another message really to show how the love of God gives rise to other attributes of God. So I don't want to go there right now, but the point I'm trying to make is that God is a God of love. And therefore, if we are going to be people of God, we must be people of love. And it doesn't even end there, does it? I mean, Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth. And why did he come to earth? He came to earth out of love. John 3.16, a verse that probably all of you here know if you've been in the church very long. God so loved the world that he sent his only son. And so we have this mission of love that came to earth when Jesus came. And of course, that itself is not the end of it, is it? Jesus went and died upon a cross. Why did he go and die upon a cross? Well, Jesus tells us, greater love has no man than someone that would lay down his life for his friend. And so Jesus, in love, goes to the cross and dies. And then he rises again from the dead so that we might be his people, so that we might be united to him as a bride is to a husband. He died to win himself a bride. Jesus did it all for love. God is a God of love. If if all of these things are the main impetus behind us being a people, behind us gathering here this morning, how can we fail to be a people of love? We must be a people of love. Otherwise, we are not a people of God. We are not a people of Jesus Christ. It is as we follow Jesus Christ, it is as we follow God, that we become a people of love. Now, again, when I say a people of love, I don't want you to immediately get in your mind the world's idea of love. When I say we are to be a people of love, I don't mainly mean that we are to be a people of acceptance. Like we just always approve one another in whatever we're doing. We just blindly accept one another, right? The the world thinks that that's what love is. But the Bible does not say that that's what love is, right? Because God is love. And God is not accepting of anything and everything. He is a holy God and a righteous God, is he not? The world thinks that the idea of love means that we have to feel really good about ourselves and feel really good about other people. And if you don't feel good about yourself or if you don't feel good about others, well, then love must somehow be missing. But again, we see very clearly from the scripture that love does, all, does not always mean that you feel good about someone else or that you always feel good about yourself. It doesn't mean that life is always easy. Again, Jesus himself, the primary man of love, was a man who was hated by many. Indeed, hated by most when he came. He was a man whose own people did not receive him. Even though he constantly and continually gave himself to others, sometimes that meant that he had very hard words for others. And that didn't always mean that the love that he had for others was reciprocated back to him. He was a man of love, but he was not always a man of just helping others to feel good and trying to feel good himself. The love of God, the love that Scripture commands us to have, is a very different kind of love than the love that the world proclaims and the love that the world embraces. They may use the same word, but they do not have the same concept. They may use the same word, but the world is not trying to do what we in the church are trying to do. We are trying to love one another in a very distinct way. We are trying to love one another in a very biblical way. 
And so that's part of what I want to look at this morning is how is it that we love one another in that way? Now, as you think about what a church is or what a church does or what makes a church a church, I wonder what is most central in your minds. What, when you think of church, is the main thing that you say, well, people really have to do this to be a church. Or if you want to be a church, you really can't do without this thing over here. And my guess is if we were to go around this room and ask a lot of different people what your answer to the question would be, we probably would come up with quite a few different answers. And certainly if we go beyond this room and we just talk to American Christians more broadly, oh man, I could see thousands of answers coming out. People will think any number of things is what makes a church a church. Well, you do need a few ingredients to make a church a church, but again, I think if you're looking strictly at the Word of God and you're simply asking God's Word, Lord, what is it that makes your people a church? What is it that makes your people distinctly your people? I do think that the primary answer that you're going to come across is the answer of love. And again, not worldly love, but biblical love. And when I say biblical love and what makes a church a church is love, I mean that there must be some kind of formal commitment to one another. Formal commitment to one another. And that's because God, in the love that he set upon us, Jesus, in the love that he showed us, was not merely showing us a casual love or a convenient love, A love that would kind of step in sometimes when it saw a need, but then step out at other times when maybe it was no longer needed or when he needed a break or something like that. No, the love of God that we see displayed to his people, the love of Christ that we see displayed to his people, is a persistent love. It is a persevering love. It is a love that carries the people of God forward even when sometimes the people of God don't want to be carried forward. Even when sometimes we are disobedient. Even when sometimes we think, I don't really like God very much today. I don't really like Jesus very much today. Well, guess what? Jesus doesn't then say, okay, well, I'm going to give you your space. You know, just return to me when you have time, when you think it's right. No, Jesus perseveres in loving us. He continues to love us. He holds us fast. Sorry about that. Um, Well, of course, now I lost my train of thought. But the idea that I'll go back to is the idea that if you were to ask many believers uh, around the U.S. what is the most central ingredient to love, um, you would get a lot of different answers. But I think when we come to the scriptures, what we see as most central to being the people of God is being a people of love. And that love means formally committing to one another because we care for one another even when one of us is having a bad day, even when one of us maybe doesn't feel like loving God that day, doesn't feel like loving one another that day, that doesn't mean that our love stops when the love of the other one stops. No. If we are a people of God, if we are a people of Jesus Christ, then we persevere in loving one another. And that means we must make some kind of commitment to one another off the bat to say, I will love you. And it's when we make that commitment to say, I will love you, that we actually become a church. Now, Why would I put this idea of love, this idea of committing to one another, so central to the identity of a church? 
Well, the first place I would go is John 17, which we read at the beginning of this message. And so if you want to turn there now, John 17, verses 20 to 23, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Now, just reading that through a second time there, I hope that there's two big ideas that really stood out to you from that passage. One idea that I hope stood out to you is that Jesus really wants us to be one right? Jesus really wants us to be one. He repeats that just a few times, does he not? And why does Jesus want us to be one? Well, look in verse 21, that they may all be one, and then he talks about how he and the Father are one. And then at the end, at the end of that verse, you get a phrase that says, so that, so that, this is the purpose of them being one, so that the world may believe that you have sent me, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. But notice, even that idea is not just given one time. That idea itself is repeated. Look down at verse 23. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Now, I will admit the word uh, love there when Jesus talks about us being one is not in place there, is it? It just talks about us being one. And yet I believe that when Jesus talks about us being one, what it is talking about is that we are to love one another. That's how verse 23 ends, right? Love them even as you loved me. I believe that the oneness that the Son and the Father have is a oneness of love. And I believe that the oneness that we in the church are supposed to have is a oneness of love. If we don't love one another, then we are not one. And on the other hand, if we are one, then that means we are loving one another. So I think these two ideas are basically synonymous, that if we want to be one people, if we want to be united, as Jesus prays for us to be united here, then that means that we are loving one another. Now again, why is this loving one another so important? Well, it's so important so that the world may believe that you, you is God the Father, that God the Father have sent me, that is God the Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus believes that it is our love for one another that will persuade the world that Jesus really is the divine Son of God. And I think you can flip this around and understand it the other way as well, which is to say that what if the people of God are not a people of love? What if the people of God don't love one another? What if they don't love their enemies? What if they don't love anyone? Well, I think the conclusion we can fairly reach is that then the world will not believe that Jesus is the divine Son of God, that Jesus is the one who came to earth. Beloved, everyone on earth today has a sense of God. 
has a sense of the divine. Everyone knows that God exists, right? Romans 1 tells us this, that we all have a sense of God. But even if Romans 1 did not tell us that, if you had a conversation with anyone on the earth, even the most violent atheist, I think at the end of the day, what you would come down to is that deep in their hearts, they have a sense that God is real and they are terrified of it. That's what makes them such a violent atheist. Everybody in the world has a sense of God. Now, because God is not present in the world always in a very eminent way, meaning we can't always see that God is present very clearly, can we not? I mean, when I came over here this morning, I had to, you know, go out to my car and I had to turn the ignition in my car and I had to make sure there was gas in my car and push the gas pedal and came over here, had to unlock the door. Everything I did this morning to get here had to happen in a totally natural way, right? I wasn't relying upon miracles to happen to get me here. I wasn't asking God to say, God, will you open the door for me to come to church this morning? No, I had to open the door myself. I had to get myself here. And that's the way the world works most of the time, is we don't see miracles happen all the time. God is not always evident in our lives day to day. And for that reason, even though many people in the world have the idea that there is a God, they know that there is a God out there, most of the time they're kind of able to safely ignore God or safely pretend that there is no God. Because they can get through their lives day to day because they always have to turn on that ignition in their car. They always have to fill up their car with gas. They're not relying on miracles day to day. God doesn't have to show up in their lives day to day and they get along just fine. And so for that reason, even though they may have evil deeds in their hearts and they know that they're wrong for those things, but they don't have much fear of God before their eyes because after all, God seems so far away. You know, if he even cares about this world at all, I don't need to worry about God today. Maybe they think someday I will worry about God. Maybe they think, you know, when I get to be really old and maybe I'm about to die, maybe then I'll start to worry about God because I do want to go to heaven. Maybe that's how they think. The bottom line is most people, even if they have a deep sense of God, they don't have any sort of trembling fear of God day to day. They don't consider God day to day because God does seem so far away. Well, what can we do? What can we do as God's people to awaken others to the reality of God? To awaken other people to the fact that God is real, that God does care about what happens on this earth today, that he can see everything, that he does know everything, that one day you will have to give an account to this God. It's, it's a very different thing, is it not, to have an idea of something versus to know the reality of something? To have an idea of something versus to know the reality of something? Just this past week in my Bible, I was reading through the book of Joshua. And toward the beginning of the book of Joshua, the people of Israel cross over the Jordan to go into the promised land where they're going to begin their conquest of the promised land and take the promised land that God has promised to give them. Now, the reason, a big reason why God promised to give Israel that promised land is because the people of Canaan were so evil. They were so wicked. They were sacrificing their own sons and daughters to their own gods, and they were doing countless other evil things. And so it was God's desire to put this evil to an end. 
Now, these people in the land of Canaan clearly had an idea of God. They had created their own God, so they knew that some God must exist, and they were kind of crossing their fingers that they had chosen the right one. They had an idea of God, but they didn't have any real fear of God because, again, they were doing all of these wicked and evil things. They were satisfying their own desires. Well, you know what happens at the beginning of the book of Joshua? When the people of Israel cross over the Jordan, God does this amazing work where he stops the Jordan River so that the water begins piling up in a hill and the people cross over the Jordan on dry land. Now, when that miracle happens, when the people of Israel crossed over the Jordan onto dry land, it says that then, and only then, the people of the land of Canaan became terrified. They were terrified because suddenly they saw a work of the true God, of the real God, and that real God was sending an army to come against them. And so their hearts melted They knew they could not do a battle against this people because God was on their side. But you see, even though they had an idea of God, they knew that there there was a real God. It wasn't until the moment when God stopped up the Jordan and those people marched across the Jordan when all of a sudden they were ready to repent. (laughs) When all of a sudden they were ready to take account of the real God and to change their lives based on who this real God is. Well, Beloved, don't we want the same thing to happen in our day? Don't we want people here in the city of Pittsburgh to repent of their sins and turn to the living God? Don't we want them to turn away from whatever their idols may be and turn to the one true God, the only one who can satisfy their souls, indeed the one to whom they will have to give an account in the end? We want them to turn to that God. So what can we do? What can we do? Now, yes, we can pray and we can ask God for miracles. Can we not? And we should. We pray and ask God to do miraculous works of healing that will persuade others that God is the true God. We can pray for the gift of prophecy where people will be persuaded that God is the true God. And I do pray that God would do those things. But when I look at John 17, and when I look at how Jesus prayed, When I look at what Jesus believed would convince the world that there was a real God who sent a real son to die for real sins and really rise again, I see Jesus identifying one main thing that needs to happen to bring this conviction upon the world. And what is that one main thing that needs to happen? Love for one another that they would be one. Just as Jesus is in the Father and the Father is in Jesus, that we also would be one as God is one. Because when we are one as God is one, then the world may believe that you have sent me. Then the world believes that there is a real God who sent his Son into the world. That the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Then the world knows that there is a people on the earth whom the true God truly loves. And beloved, if someone's eyes are open to the idea that there is a real God 
and that he has really set his love on a tangible people on earth, who would not want to be part of that people? Who would not want to be part of this body of people who are loved by the living God, by the God of heaven and earth? Again, we all have a deep knowledge of God in our hearts. Most of mankind works to suppress it. Most of mankind works to ignore it. I'm convinced that's why TV is such big business, why radio is such big business, why entertainment is such big business, because it is such a powerful antidote to that knowledge of God. Because it helps us suppress and suppress and suppress. And so what can we do to relieve this suppression? What can we do to open eyes so that people say, oh my goodness, there is a real God. He really is working on earth today. He really does love a people. What can we do? We can love one another. If we are one, if we will love one another, then we will persuade the world that Jesus Christ truly is the Son of God. Now, we also read passages this morning that my argument is they show us how this love showed up in the early church. And so if you want to turn your Bibles to Acts 3. Again, in verse 41, this is the very ending of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, right? The tongues of fire descended on the apostles. They were speaking in different languages they didn't know. And then Peter kind of takes up this mantle of preaching. And Peter preaches a sermon that, you know, if you're like me, you read the sermon Peter preached and you really wonder, how did this bring conviction on anybody? He's just kind of retelling the history of Israel. But nevertheless, Peter preaches a sermon. And then what happens at the end of the sermon? So those who received his word received his word, meaning they heard his preaching and they received it. They accepted it. They agreed with it. Received his word, were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Okay, so now we have a church, right? We have 3,000 souls. 3,000 people were saved. And what did they do? 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, and the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Now, that's obviously another sermon in itself. We're not going to talk about all those things, but do notice in there, part of what they devoted themselves to is the fellowship. What is the fellowship? It is their partnership with one another, their partnership in the gospel. They devoted themselves to one another was one component of their becoming a church. They devoted themselves to those things, and awe came upon every soul. Awe, a sense of the reality of God. God wasn't just an idea. He was someone who was deeply impressed upon their minds and upon their souls, so that he went from being an idea, some object of belief, to being a reality that they could not ignore. Awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And now what, what does Luke, the author of Acts, what does he choose to emphasize about this church? What stood out about it? 44, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. 
And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now clearly the word love does not appear here in Acts chapter 3 in this description of the church. But where the word love does not appear, can any of us argue against the fact that the reality of love does appear? I mean, what could be leading people to sell their possessions, to have everything in common, to live together, to have each other over into one another's homes, to do all these things? What could compel these people to do this if not love? They were loving one another in a remarkable way. And even we sitting here today, thousands of years later, we look at this and we say, that's remarkable, right? Because I'm not ready to go sell my home or sell all my possessions and give everything away. Now, I pray often that the Lord would give me that sort of heart of love. I, I don't mean to offer that as an excuse, the fact that I'm not ready to do it. But it's an amazing kind of love, is it not? And so... Day by day, attending temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. And then notice that next phrase, having favor with all the people. Having favor with all the people. Now, Acts 3 doesn't totally flesh this out, does it? It doesn't tell us, well, how did this favor come about? Why, why did they have this favor with all the people? But I believe that what's implicit in these words, what's implicit in this passage, is that this remarkable love that this first church had for one another, that this remarkable love is what gave them favor with all the people. I mean, who on planet Earth, in, in what city on planet Earth, would not like to have some group of people in their city that so unconditionally care for one another and love one another. It is a good thing for the city. It is a good thing for people to, even if you're not part of it, to have some body of people who are this loving, who demonstrate this level of care for one another, this level of generosity. And so it's this love that they had that somehow then radiated to the city of Jerusalem around them so that they had favor with all the people. And what happened? And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You see, one thing that this kind of love did, one thing that this kind of love did, that when all these people were in this church and they were selling everything they had, sharing it with one another, is it made people outside the church see what they were missing out on. And it made people outside the church see what they would have to give up, how their lives would have to change if they really wanted to be a part of this church, if they wanted to be part of this group of people that were selling everything they own and giving it to one another. They had a formal commitment of love to one another. They weren't just selling everything they owned and giving it out randomly to strangers on the street. No, they were becoming part of a new people of God. They were becoming part of one church. And when they were part of one church, they could look at one another in the church and they could see, oh, I see you have a need. I see you have a need. I see you have a need. Let me sell this thing that I have to care for this need. Let me sell that thing that I have to care for that need. And so they were this community of love. 
whereby people who were outside this community of love were kind of looking in from the outside saying, that looks amazing. I've never seen anything like that. The kind of love they have for one another is totally different than my own selfish heart. It's totally different than the way that I order my life. I would never sell anything I have for anyone else. How do I get to be part of that? What do I need to change to become part of that? And because the church was this community of love for one another, they had this reputation for love, this reputation for good works that caused them to have favor with all the people and that simultaneously kind of set up this wall or set up this boundary between the church and the world so that people knew that there was this community. There was this community that was compelling by its own actions. It was compelling by its own behaviors, even though those behaviors were extreme, even though those behaviors were hard for the world to accept, the world could look inside the church and they could say, I want to be a part of that. Or they could look inside the church and they could say, well, those people are crazy. I will never be a part of that. But either way, the church was making a statement. The church was standing for what God wanted her to stand for. As we read in John 13, Jesus says, By this all people will know you are my disciples, by the love that you have for one another. Rodney Stark, who's a sociologist, he, he studied the growth of the early church. He has this fantastic quote that talks about how the church grew for the first 300 years. Let me just read this quote to you. It says, Christianity revitalized life in the Greco-Roman cities by providing new norms and new kinds of social relationships able to cope with many urgent urban problems. To cities filled with homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemics, fires, and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. What Rodney Stark is pointing out in each of these avenues is that the church was a community, was a fellowship of love that pressed out in all these directions, that pressed out in medical care, that pressed out into the dangers of ethnic strife, that pressed out to care for orphans and widows, that pressed out to care for newcomers and strangers, that pressed out to care for homeless and impoverished. It was precisely as people saw what the community of the church was, the hope that it offered, the light of the world, that the church was able to grow and to flourish. And so, beloved, in every book of the New Testament that we read through, there is always some section of the book that it is dedicated to how the church is to live together. Again, many times we don't have eyes to see this because we as Americans like to read our Bibles as individualists, right? We like to read our Bibles and think, okay, what is there here for me? What is the Bible telling me to do? And that's fine. That's right, right? We do have to read the Bible and say, what does it tell me to do? But more significantly, every book of the Bible has something for the church to do. 
How is the church to live together? If you go to Romans, Romans chapter 13 to 15 is all about the church. Galatians chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 4 and 5, Philippians 2, 1 to 11, 1 and 2 Corinthians, the whole books are about how the church is to live together. Same with 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon. All of these books are speaking to the church about how they can be the church, about how their love is reflected to one another in the church. One of my favorite passages in this regard is Colossians 3. Colossians 3, 12 to 17. And I just want to read this for us. And again, as I read this, just consider how the Apostle Paul in this letter to the church in Colossae is trying to kind of refract the commandment to love into every aspect of the church's life together. So the, the main command is command to love, but that carries carries itself out in numerous different ways. So Colossians 3, starting in verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. You can't be compassionate unless you're compassionate towards someone else. Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Do you see how many different ways the Apostle Paul wants our love to take expression to one another? Because we love one another, he wants us to sing psalms to one another. Because we love one another, he wants us to teach and admonish one another. Because we love one another, he wants us to be compassionate to one another. Love is an amazing thing when you understand it rightly, beloved. When it isn't just blind approval, it isn't just blind acceptance of whoever you are, whatever you are. But when it's an actual proactive desire to do good to someone else. That kind of love, when it abounds in the church is an amazing thing. It's for that reason, beloved, that I believe a healthy church, that a healthy church will always value culture above programs. A healthy church will always value culture above programs. Now, it doesn't mean a healthy church has no programs or poo-poos programs or anything like that. I like programs. I want us to have more and better programs and all that. But the most important thing for the church is to love one another. And love is not a matter of programming. I cannot establish a program in the church that will help you, that will cause you to love one another in all the ways that the New Testament calls you to love one another. No, you must be born again. You must have Christ in your heart. You must be filled with the Holy Spirit. And when you are filled with the Holy Spirit, then you look out across the church and you do see a thousand different ways to love. You're not just waiting on your pastor or your elders to to tell you what to do to love others. You're not just looking for the list of instructions that really lays out exactly what you have to do to love others. Beloved, that kind of living is Old Testament living. That kind of living is legal living, is law living. 
We don't live according to the law. We live according to the Spirit. And as we keep in step with the Spirit, Galatians 5.22 tells us the fruit of the Spirit, right? What is the very first fruit of the Spirit? It is love. And so as we, as a people, are filled with the Spirit, certain things take place in our hearts, certain things take place in our lives where we start to be just on the lookout around us to say, how can I care for you? How can I care for you? And yes, we know it will be difficult. You know, sometimes we won't want to do this loving thing that we have to do. Sometimes it'll be embarrassing, you know, You don't want to have someone over to the house when my house looks like this or something like that. It's not always going to feel good. It's not always going to be easy. And yet, because we are filled with the Spirit, because we have have seen the love that God poured out on us in His Son, because we have come to rejoice in that love that Jesus Christ showed for us upon the cross, Therefore, we say, yes, it is going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be messy at times, but I want to love this people. I want to serve this people as Christ himself has loved me. I want to love them, which is exactly what Christ has commanded us. Is it not, beloved? In closing, let me just ask this question. There are many large churches in the United States, are there not? There's even large churches here in Pittsburgh. And not even just many large churches, right? Beyond large churches, there's many more small churches like us. There's many churches across our land. But my question for us in conclusion is simply, what would happen, what would happen if the Holy Spirit stopped showing up in our churches? What would happen if the Holy Spirit packed up and went home tomorrow, and we never heard from him again. Could life in our churches go on as it always has? Could we come back to worship the next Sunday and worship just as we've always worshipped? Beloved, my, my great fear, my greatest fear, in fact, is that there are many churches in America today who do not rely at all on the Holy Spirit who can gather week after week, who can have excellence in their music, who can have excellence in their preaching, who can have excellence in their children's programming, excellence in all these things, but not for one minute do they need to depend upon the Holy Spirit to show up in some tangible way if they truly are to be the church. But beloved, here at Providence, I want us to rely upon the Spirit. My my prayer is that if the Holy Spirit were to pack up and go home tomorrow, that our church would just be gone. That we would disappear. Because we are not founded on the basis of our own human excellence. We are not founded upon the basis of my excellence in preaching or in leading a flock. We are not founded upon the basis of my wisdom or any other human wisdom. We are not founded upon the basis of the fact that we all have money to give and so we can have a budget and a building and all of these nice things. We are not founded on the basis of any of these human realities. We are founded upon the basis of the fact that we have been born again by the Spirit of God. 
And because we have been born again by the Spirit of God, the Spirit in our hearts cries out to God as Abba Father saying, Lord, I want to worship you. I want to praise you. And it looks around at the church body and it says, we want to love one another because this is the work of the Holy Spirit in us, beloved. This is the work of the Spirit in us. To worship God, to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love one another. If we do not do that, we are not a church. We are not filled with the Spirit, and we ought not to exist. And so my prayer is that we would be so filled with the Spirit, not just that there would be signs and wonders. Yes, I pray for that. I pray for healing and tongues and prophecy and all those things. But beloved, what is the main sign given to the world today to convince the world that God is alive? that Jesus truly is the Son of God. The main sign, beloved, the main wonder that is to be at work in us is the wonder of love. The wonder of people no longer looking after your own selfish desires, your own private desires, and instead looking out across a people saying, how can I do good to you, even if it's hard for me? How can I care for you? And so, beloved, if you are a member here at Providence Church already, I praise God for you that you have taken that step to covenant with us as a church and that you're seeking to live out that relationship of love that I've been talking about. If you're not a member of Providence yet, then I just plead with you to take that step to commit yourself in covenant, if not with this body, then with some other body because we as Christians are called to love one another. And again, not just in a casual way, but in a deep and profound way. And so, beloved, in this year, 2023, as Nate proclaimed last week, let us follow Jesus. Let us be disciples of Jesus Christ. And as we are disciples of Jesus Christ, let our primary evidence of this discipleship be love for one another. Now, I'm so privileged to be in this church where I do see so many signs of love already, I do love the way how after the service we'll stay and we'll talk with one another for a long time. I love the way that when somebody needs meals, we'll take them meals. Those are ways that we love one another and we should do that all the more. And let's continue to pray, beloved, that we can grow as a church and caring for one another, loving one another deeply. Let's pray that we can grow in that singing psalms to one another. Pray that we can grow in asking one another hard questions. Pray that we can grow when someone is not around for a few weeks and we don't know what their standing is with the Lord, that we would love them enough to go after them and find them. Pray that we would be a people of love in every respect. I don't know exactly how the church in the book of Acts came to this place of selling everything they own and giving it all to one another. One thing I'm pretty sure of, though, I don't think it was a program that the apostles launched for suddenly everyone to suddenly sell everything. I think it was something that was born of the Spirit working in their hearts. And so even though I, I cannot announce to you some grandiose plan for exactly how we will be a people of love, the way that we are to be a people of love, my confidence and my belief is that the Spirit of God will work in us. The Spirit of God will work in you. The Spirit of God will work in me. And as the Spirit of God works, we will become this people of love 
and we will persuade the world that Jesus truly is the Son of God. Would you go to the Lord with me in prayer now? Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have set the Spirit in our hearts. I thank you that you have given the example to love that we so desperately need. And I pray, Lord, that you would fan that Spirit into flame within us, that deeds of love, that acts of faith would abound, would leap out of our hearts toward one another, Lord, so that we can persuade the world that Jesus truly is your Son. I thank you, Lord, for this people. I thank you for the measure of love that you have placed in my heart for them, and I pray that measure of love would just continue to expand and expand as your Spirit has his way in me. Would you hear our prayers as your people now?